Well, let me go ahead and say happy Sabbath to everyone. Very, very grateful to be here with you all. Very thankful that the Lord has brought us all safely through another week, given us an opportunity to come together that we can study his words of truth, receive it in our hearts, that we don't just leave more intelligent, but far more important than that, that we leave transformed. And this is the will of God. And so as we prepare to study this evening, and of course, we are very grateful for all of those who have completed their courses and uh, you stressed yourself. I'm sure you, your minds were taxed, and I just want you to understand that this is the beginning of your work. You know, you're leaving the classroom, you're getting ready to go into a very vicious field, and as Christ goes with you, you have nothing to fear. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time kind of talking about the Word of God, looking at what really does God want from you as you're getting ready to leave this place? But it's not merely just to those who are uh, students getting ready to go into the field, but this is for the staff who are here at Wildwood. I believe the Lord has something for you too. I believe the Lord has something for every single individual. And you know what's even more exciting? The Lord has something for me. The word of God should penetrate the preacher way before it penetrates the people. And so I have seen how God has challenged me through this message, and I pray that you receive the same challenge and seek the same source of strength to go forward and to be part of God's team in the finishing of his work. As we prepare our hearts to receive the study this evening, I believe the best way to do that is upon our knees. And so I'm going to kneel and pray and I know we're very pressed in together, but if you can kneel, I'm going to ask you to please kneel with me. If you cannot kneel, then just bow your heads where you are. But let us go before the Lord, and let's let him speak to our heart. Our loving Father, we are very grateful for the wonderful blessing to be able to study your words of truth, to be able to be led by your spirit, to be able to edify and strengthen one another as we get ready to enter into the final scenes of the Christian race. We pray, O oh God, that you will please forgive us of our sins. Let there be nothing in our hearts that would cause a disruption of what heaven wants to communicate to us tonight. And I pray that you would please abide with us, open our eyes, help us behold wondrous things out of your word, and Lord, teach us and grant us heaven's most choicest blessings on this your holy Sabbath day. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right. You know, um, I am very grateful to be here with my bride, Alexandra. And uh, anytime I get a chance, we have four very grown children. Uh, they're grown to me. I mean, you know, they're grown in height, and they're also grown in age, too. We have four children, ages 19, 18, 17, and 16. And uh, that was not the plan, but that's the truth, nevertheless. And, uh, you know, their minds are still very precious, still very young, and uh, they still have tons of needs. It's just on a different level. You know, they're not the two, three, four, five like before, but now they are older. And, you know, living a life of homeschooling and doing all that we can to give our children uh, what God has given to us we cherish every moment that we can get. 
when we can just be husband and wife and get away. Even when it's on a mission, it has a different feel to it. So I'm very grateful to be here with my bride. And um, earlier today, at a certain point, I happened to click on a program that a friend of mine sent me. And it was a program dealing with the uh, atheist delusion. And I was like, well, that's an intriguing title. I said, I wonder what this is about. So I pressed play. And it was very good, I must say. I said, you know, this is good. And it was a gentleman, some of you probably heard of him. He's an apologist, uh, uh, Ray Comfort. And, you know, he was going to schools and universities where a lot of people are secular, scientists, you know. And, of course, you'll probably find a lot of atheists. And as he was there, he was challenging them on asking, do you believe in God? And, of course, they said, no, absolutely not. It's foolish to believe in God. And they started to go down that list. And he began to challenge them. And I must admit, I said, you know, his method of challenging was very compelling. I mean, the way that he just engaged them and was able to walk through step by step that in the beginning of the program, they were saying, no way, it's ridiculous, there is no God, we don't believe in God. But in the end, every single one of them said, you know what, we have to admit, we denounce atheism. We believe there is a God. I mean, he's, he, he was super methodical as he brought them from that point to this point. And so I was impressed. I said, yeah, it's pretty good. And then as my wife and I began to talk about it, you know, we talked about pros and cons. And as we talked about the pros and cons, the pro was obviously he intellectually challenged them. He got them to a place that he presented facts in such a way that they would have to realize it was absolutely foolish to believe in atheism. I mean, he got them there. He, he intellectually challenged them. He intellectually stimulated them. I mean, he got them right where he wanted. And my wife and I clearly saw that. But then my question was, but honey, I said, here's the question. What happens after these people say that Jesus is the Lord? What happens after these people say, okay, yeah, we believe in God now? Now they have to live Christ-like lives every day. And that is a whole different challenge that goes beyond the intellect. You see... The more that I began to watch that program is the more I began to understand why it is absolutely imperative that God had to raise up the Seventh-day Adventist church. It was so clear to me because our job is not to get caught up in apologetics just so we can intellectually prove people wrong while we go ahead and prove God, the Bible, and ourselves right. I hope you understand that there was more, there's more to the work than that. A lot of times we just want to prove the others wrong and prove that God is right. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll go ahead and talk about this. I've been married for 20 years, so I know a little something about marriage. So I'll say this. Husbands and wives, have you ever had a disagreement about something? And either the husband or either the wife wanted to make clear that the position of your spouse is wrong and that your position is right. Have you ever irrefutably established your fact that I'm right and you're wrong. And if you've ever had that experience, the question is, how much more peace did it bring to your home? Do you get that? Do you get the point? Sometimes you can be right and you can be right in a very irrefutable manner, but you basically have accomplished nothing. God has not sent us in the world to tell everybody else you're wrong and we're right. God has a desire, and the desire of God 
should be the desire of all his people. Because last I checked, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're watching me go across this podium up here, and if you see my head go right and my body go left, you all would probably leave this room because you probably say, there's some spiritualism in here. You understand that? You don't see a man's head go right and his body go left. Wherever the head goes, the body goes. You understand that? When the head, when the brain nerves, when the mind communicates to the body to pick up the Bible, the mind had to send that message. It's amazing that once you stump your foot, your mind literally says, say, ouch, and you go, ouch. I mean, it's amazing how the body is just so incredibly wired together. The body does not move independent of the head. Do you know what the head wants? Because whatever the head wants, it's what the body should want, even when they do gospel, medical, missionary evangelism. I wonder what the head wants. Go to the book of Proverbs, the 23rd chapter. Let's find out what the head wants. If God does not get this at the end of our gospel, medical, missionary evangelism, if God does not get this, our work is worthless. Our trainings are worthless. Everything about the ministry that we represent is worthless. And the Bible tells us exactly what God wants. It's a beautiful summary. It's just one verse. Can you imagine that? In Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider Proverbs 23 and verse 26. In Proverbs 23 and verse 26, the Bible says, my son, do what? Give me thine heart. Let your eyes observe my ways. God says, I'm not satisfied until I get the heart of a man. God says, I'm not satisfied until I get the heart of a woman. You see, and the reason God is so much into heart work is because just go a few verses up to the very first portion of verse 7. What does it say there? It says, as a man thinketh in his, what's the conclusion? So is he. You see, once God has the heart, he now can reproduce his character in us. If I got your heart, God says, then that means you got me, I got you, and you, are, you will reflect me. It is possible to go into environments. It is possible to study heavily. It is possible to get a lot of intellectual understanding of many things. And at the end of the day, God says, this is nice. They now know how to do hydrotherapy. This is nice. They now understand the way to read a lab report. This is nice. They now know how to do all sorts of things. But the question is, do you know how to reach the heart? You see, if you and I don't know how to reach the heart, then even our graduation can become a formality. God says you and I must learn how to reach the heart. And the best way to learn how to reach the heart is when God has your heart. And so we're going to talk about that all throughout our weekend together. Is that all right? The heart has never become such an interesting thing to me since I had heart surgery. Because when God worked on my heart, God was really working on my heart. And now I see everything with brand new eyes. It's like I understand the gospel more clearly than I've ever understood it before. 
And I know what God wants. I know what will bring Jesus back. But I also know what won't. Ellen White one day made a very profound statement. It's found in the book, Volume 5 of the Testimonies to the Church. It starts on page 213, and it's on the subject called The Seal of God. In this chapter, she makes a startling statement in page 213, by which she says, there are many who keep the Sabbath who will not receive the seal of God in their foreheads. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If we are good old textbook Prophecy 101 Seventh-day Adventists, we know that the seal of God is in the Sabbath. That's, just, that's like Bible Prophecy 101. Now, how could somebody keep the Sabbath but not get the seal? That almost doesn't make sense. Well, she goes on and gets even deeper. She doesn't just say there are people who go around keeping the Sabbath, but she says they won't get the seal. She then says, and there are many who teach the truth who will not receive the seal of God in their foreheads. Wait a minute. That's not just lay people. Now that's ministers. The quote continues to state the reality. It, it says, they had the light of truth. They knew their master's will. They understood every point of their faith. That means these people were incredibly, 100% doctrinally sound. But they don't get the seal. Now, you have to understand, it's one thing if you're dead. If you're dead, you know, and you don't get the seal of the living God, well, that's a different subject. But these are people who are alive. Now, if you're alive when God is sealing people in their forehead, and if the seal bypasses us, what do we by default get? We get the mark of the beast. If we don't get the, if we're alive and God is literally sealing people, and here it is that we don't get the seal, then that means by default we get the mark of the beast. So this quotation really got my attention. It continues. They had the light of truth. They knew their master's will. They understood every point of our faith. But then it says this. But they had not corresponding works. They knew it all, but they practiced little. Please understand that. They knew it all, but they practiced little. She says they had not corresponding works. I will give you the next sentence of that quote towards the end of our study because it's even more startling. What God is trying to do is get our attention because it's very, very late. I want to make it very clear to you, my brothers and sisters. The hour is very, very late in Earth's history. God is letting everything by sea and by land be revealed. God is showing us of the things happening in our world as well as things happening in the church that Jesus is making it crystal clear probation is about to close. We have to be a people prepared to meet our God. And then we must be instruments to help others be prepared to meet their God. And so understanding that God wants my heart, God wants your heart, that is the great work that God wants for each and every one of us. God raised up this movement to do his last method of heart work. 
to prepare people to meet their God. There are two things people often ask me. I have a lot of non-Seventh-day Adventists that listen to me. I keep finding this out almost every week. I keep finding out people from all sorts of denominational movements, people who are part of Islam and and, 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 and Buddhism and so on. I get phone calls everywhere. I mean, can you imagine my cell phone? And it gets phone calls from all over the planet. When my wife and I and my family went into full-time ministry, I thought we were going to be some little tiny ministry just working in our local church, doing a little here and there in Atlanta. So when we were like, you know, what, should, what, what phones should we use to do our work? We, some people got to reach us. I said, oh, I'll use my cell phone. I said, yeah, I'll use my cell phone. No, you know, you're not going to get that many calls. Big mistake. All you getting ready to start, Evan, starting your, starting your ministry, do not use your cell phone. Because now I get all these strange-looking numbers coming up on my phone. And I'm like, hello, hello, I'm calling from South Korea. What? Hello, I'm calling from India. Hello, I'm call all over the world. So people are calling, and they're asking questions about guidance in God's ways. And so I'm starting to think about this, and I said, Lord, we all have the gift of influence, and God wants us to use it very faithfully. And we must know why we do what we do so that we can do it effectively. Does that make sense? Because a lot of you, getting ready to leave in the context of graduation, you're going to start going and doing a lot of work, and you're going to touch a lot of people's lives, and people are going to start coming to you looking for guidance, and it is imperative that you and I know how to give crystal clear answers. Because that's God's commandment. Whenever you read 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, write it down if you don't know it. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, that's your verse. As a gospel worker, that's your verse. The Bible says it very clearly in 1 Peter 3, 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give every man an answer when they ask you the reason of the hope that is in you. Some of your Bibles might say defense. God expects you to always have an answer, always. What are the things that God wants us to do in such a time as this, with such a tremendous work lying right before us? There are two things that God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist church to do, two things, and they both involve the word reveal. Two things that God raised up this movement to do, and they both involve the word reveal. The first revelation that God raised up this movement to reveal is found in the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Let's turn there. In 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, we find one of the things that God has raised us up to reveal and to make it plain, make it clear. The Bible says in the book of 2 Thessalonians, when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, 2 Thessalonians 2 is a continuation of the Apostle Paul, obviously speaking from the things in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul was talking about the second coming of Christ. He was making it very clear. You can especially see that from right about verse 7 and onward, talking about the second coming of Christ, everlasting destruction, and all these other things. And now in chapter 2, he's continuing with the thought that was put in chapter 1. So watch what it says starting at verse 1. It says, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Talking about the gathering together unto him when he comes. Then it says in verse 2, that you be not soon shaken in mind 
or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. God makes it clear that the day of Christ, the second coming of Christ, shall not come until something very important has to happen. It says, the day of Christ shall not come except there come a falling away first. And what will take place? Take place next. And that what? Man of sin shall be what? Revealed. The son of perdition who opposes and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. A great blasphemous movement will rise up. It'll be instrumental in the falling away, the apostasia, the falling away from the truth in the early period of the Dark Ages. But there's going to be a continuation of this work in the very last moments of Earth's history. And God wants to make sure that he has a people, yea, a movement that will reveal that man of sin to make it very crystal clear, to make it plain who that man of sin is. Now, the Bible makes it very clear in verse 4. It's almost like it's very easy to see. It says in verse 4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself, in fact, that he is God. Daniel spoke about this very same thing. You remember, in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel began to walk through the successive movements, kingdoms. They were first revealed in Daniel 7 as beasts, but then here they're also revealed as beasts as well, just taking on a different form. Same principles, same kingdoms, but a different form. When Daniel got to the fourth beast, the beast that came after Greece, when Daniel got up to that beast power, Daniel said something that was very important to be understood. Not only in its local literal sense, of its first fulfillment, but what it's going to seek to do all the way till the end of time. Daniel said, and through his policy, which is actually intelligence, through his intelligence, also he shall cause craft or deceit to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall do what? Now that doesn't even make any sense. By peace, he shall destroy. Peace doesn't destroy. Peace causes life. It brings forth life. It brings joy. It brings happiness. But this is a method that is being used by this last power. It says, by peace, he shall destroy many. And then it goes on to say, he shall also stand up against the prince of princes. Same power. Going to stand up against Jesus himself. And then it says in closing, but he shall be broken Without hand. That's going to be his close. Now, the reason that this becomes so important for you and I is because the first beast that was spoken of in Daniel 7, also when we think about Daniel 8, the first beast we're dealing with is especially Babylon. But then the second beast was Medo-Persia. Third beast, Greece. Fourth beast, Rome. Now, obviously, this is dealing with Rome if we are students of prophecy. Now, looking at Rome, we know that Rome is going to play a magnificent part in the fulfillment of prophecy in the very last days. Now, we fast forward all the way up to our day today. Rome, the papacy, plays a tremendous role in world events, yea, prophetic events. 
something that happened just a few days ago was very significant to you and I. Just a few days ago, right there, Pope Francis. Pope Francis meets the new president of the Lutheran World Federation. Now, this movement is very key for those of us who are students of prophecy. Always remember, if you're a student of prophecy, you always pay attention to current events. You got to pay attention to current events. You know why? Jesus did that. Go to the book of Mark chapter 1. Let me show you something very quickly. Let me show you how Jesus studied prophecy. When you look at how Jesus studied prophecy, I think you and I should do the same thing. Notice what the Bible says in the book of Mark. We're looking at chapter 1. The Bible shows us exactly how Jesus started his ministry. And I want you to watch carefully what Christ says. The Bible says in the book of Mark, the first chapter, when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. In Mark 1, I want you to watch verses 14 and 15. The Bible says in Mark 1, verse 14, Now, after that John was put in prison, it says Jesus came into Galilee, and what was Jesus doing? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, please understand the context of that. Jesus was not starting up, in truth, his public ministry yet. John the Baptist was doing his public ministry, preparing the way for Christ to initiate his public ministry. John, unfortunately, is now in prison. So as John's public ministry starts going down, praise the Lord, Jesus' public ministry launches. When Jesus' public ministry launches, he now goes out. That's why Mark is giving that specific point where he says, after John was put in prison, Jesus now comes out. Jesus has finished his 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He has now been strengthened by the Spirit of God and angels. He is prepared to launch his mission. So now Christ goes forward. Verse 15, it says, and saying the what? The time is what? What time? What time was fulfilled? Yeah, all right. What prophetic, what prophetic time was fulfilled? The 70 weeks. Was the 70 weeks completed? So then what time, what prophecy was fulfilled? Because right here, he's saying it clear that a prophecy was fulfilled. So the question is, what prophecy was fulfilled? Say again. Very good. The anointing of Christ. When did the anointing of Christ take place? When he was baptized. Was his baptism a private event or was it a public event? All right, so notice that what Christ did was he used something that happened in the public, something that people saw, something that people knew about. And what Jesus did is he used that, watch my words, he used that current event. And he took the current event and then gave the message and said, the time is fulfilled. Are you following? So even Jesus showed us the way that we study and the way that we teach prophecy is that we should always be looking at the current events that took place and let that current event, when that current event lies in harmony with Bible prophecy, then we are to go forward and preach that message from the rooftop. You understand that? All right. So Jesus goes ahead. The current event is taking place. He is now preaching, and he's telling the people what? He says, repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent ye and believe the gospel. This is what Christ did. This is what, if the body is connected to the head, then this is what we should be doing. You understand that? Two things that God has called us to reveal. 
The first thing God has called us to reveal is what? Is the man of sin. You know why God wants the man of sin to be revealed? Because the man of sin leads people to sin. Is that simple enough? Why? In a, really and true, because sometimes people say, oh, you're not being nice. Why you got to be so rough? It's like, listen, we're not trying to be rough. We're not trying to be unkind. What we're doing is pointing out the fact that the man of sin has one job. It is to lead people into sin. Now, what is the effect of sin? Isaiah 59, fundamental studies thus far. Isaiah 59, what is the effect of sin? Certainly, we should understand Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. The Bible is very clear. God says, I want my people in these last moments in earth's history to understand I raised them up to reveal two things. The first thing we know is that God raised us up to reveal that man of sin. The reason God wants us to reveal the man of sin is because the man of sin leads people to sin. And the question is, what is the effect of sin? The Bible says in Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have done what? has separated between you and your God, and your sins have done what else? Hid his face from you that he will not hear. Sin causes God to turn his face from us, to hide his face from us. We sing a hymn called Face to Face Shall I Behold Him. And there's no way we're going to behold him unless we let him take away our sins. And so one of the first things God says must be revealed is the man of sin, because the man of sin leads people into sin. So when we look at something like this and we say, wow, you know what? In history, we know that Martin Luther played a pivotal role as it relates to what we know today as the Christian Reformation, the Protestant movement. And so it is that now we're seeing the Lutheran Federation, the president thereof, and here are the things that's being said, Vatican Radio. Pope Francis met on Thursday with the new president of the Lutheran World Federation, Nigerian Archbishop Musa Panti Philibus, focusing on common prayer as the key to Christian unity. So notice that, again, using different things to say, this is where our common ground are. We believe in prayer. Let's pray together and let's pray for unity. Put aside our differences. Always remember, ecumenism sets aside differences. Protestantism puts away differences. There is a difference. When something is put away, it's gone and you never see it again. When something is set aside, it's still present. It's just hidden. It's kind of like when a husband says, I forgive you, but he really doesn't. He's just hiding it in his heart. It's kind of like when a wife says that, no, 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 I, I appreciate you, but really she's harboring bitterness, anger, and resentment still in her heart. Can that make a successful marriage? No, my brothers and sisters, and so it is with Jesus. We have to let Jesus put away our sins. He doesn't want us to set it aside. He doesn't want us to put it in our pockets. He doesn't want us to put it on a shelf and say, I'll come back to it at a rainy day. God says, I want to get to a point that you love me so much, as much as I love you, to the point that as I died for you, you'd be willing to die for me rather than to do the thing that separates us. Christ says, that's what I want. And the only way Jesus can get that is not when he merely has our intellect. He has to have our whole everything. You can't reserve anything with God. 
You can't hold on to something that God has already made plain to you and made plain to me. This hurts me. This offends me. You cannot be successful if you hold on to this. And so, when we look at this here, this becomes very eye-opening because, again, the man of sin leads people into sin, and sin does what between us and God? That's why God says, I want him revealed, because a lot of people are falling for it. Notice, through prayer, the Pope continued, we are able to see the painful divisions of past centuries in a new light, abandoning our prejudices, purifying our memories, and looking to the future with confidence. Through prayer, he said, we are called to recognize the gifts of our different traditions and receive them as our shared Christian heritage. Very powerful, very methodical. And you have to understand that when we begin to preach things like this, sometimes it'll be called hate speech. You have to understand that Pope Francis right now is helping people uh, you know, overcome their ailments, just like a lot of you medical missionaries. Pope Francis right now is going around and blessing people with finances. Did you hear about a month or so ago when somebody made a specialized Lamborghini for him? Did y'all hear about that story? Made a nice specialized Lamborghini for him and wanted to give it to him, had his name inscripted on it and everything. And Pope Francis said, thank you, but no, I would like to accept this gift only if I can go ahead and turn it into the treasury so we can help more of the poor. And everybody said, oh, how humble. How many of you would have turned in that Lamborghini? Wrote your name on it. You, some of us would have said, well, I mean, I would have given it away, but it got my name on it. I guess I got to keep it. <laughs> Not Pope Francis. That humble man. And please understand, my, my issue is not so much even with Pope Francis. My issue is with the position of Pope. You see, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, when it talked about that man of sin sitting in the temple of God as if he himself is God, that is the position of Pope, whether his last name was Paul, whether his last name was Francis, or if his last name is any other name. Our issue is not with the person as much as it is with the position. You understand that? So when we think of the man of sin, we are thinking of the position of the Pope and the very seat upon which he sits, which is the papacy. God says, I want that revealed. Why? Because the world is clearly deceived. If you study this whole article, you literally hear the president of the Lutheran Church say, we're going to do everything possible to get everybody else to join ranks with this wonderful ecumenical effort. Jesus in love understands there's a time and there's a place where things have to be revealed because the people are under a deception. Are you following that so far? All right, well, let's continue. In the little book, Great Controversy, it says, through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. It says, and many undeniable wonders will be performed. And as the spirits will profess faith in the Bible and manifest respect for the institutions of the church, their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. You know, Wildwood, you have a wonderful opportunity. As I heard the beautiful testimony about going to that special place, uh, you know, I guess I can't say it because, you know, I want to be careful. You know, I understand. But you heard the place that they're going. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I talked to a friend of mine who works with Amazing Facts. Got a lot of buddies over there. As I was talking to one of my buddies who's an evangelist that travels all over the world and 
including that country, he said, you know, when I go to that country, he said, I got to tell you, man, he says, you know, we can baptize thousands of people just in two weeks. And I began to scratch my head, I said, two weeks and baptize thousands? I said, that sounds a little quick. He said, yeah. He said, the reason why is because what the people do is when they accept God, they add him to the other 1,000, 2 million plus gods that they're already serving. So in other words, when sometimes the report comes back, we baptize 10,000 people in two weeks. A lot of the church says, amen. I say, hmm, interesting. And when you begin to dig a little bit more and say, well, tell me about those baptisms. How did, how did it go? How did the Bible workers do it? How did, how did, how did, how did, you know, or whatever. Did you tell them that in order to accept the true and living God, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, when you tell them about that, are you telling them that they have to denounce all the other two million? Are you making that plain? Do you make that clear before they go down into that watery grave? Did you know that there's a lot of ministers that don't do that? And so these are tough grounds. Because sometimes the people are like, hey, I'll, I'll add Jesus, no problem, to the other, you know. what? But when we say, the only true God, Jesus Christ whom he has sent, this is life eternal. That's when people say, well, we're going to have to talk about that. Inspiration makes it clear, this beast power, that's what they're doing. They're telling everybody, you can go ahead and have your thousand gods, just add us to the list. That's not our work, family. They're going to use the medium of spiritualism. They're going to use healing. It goes on. It says the line of distinction between professed Christians and the ungodly is now hardly distinguishable. It says church members love what the world loves and are ready to join with them. And Satan determines to unite them in one body and thus strengthen his cause by sweeping all into the ranks of spiritualism. Continuing, it says, papists who boast of miracles as a certain sign of the true church. It says, as a certain sign of the true church, will be readily deceived by this wonder-working power. And who else? Protestants, having cast away the shield of truth, will also be deluded. You see, that's the danger. That president of the Lutheran church says, I think it's wonderful that we join in this ecumenical movement where we set aside our doctrinal differences for a quote-unquote higher purpose. They don't even understand what they're setting themselves up for. And can you imagine God has raised you up to be the lighthouses, to show forth the revelation, to reveal that man of sin and his plan, and then to show them God's plan. That's why God did it. Sometimes we think, now that we know how to do hydrotherapy, now that we know how to do all sorts of different herbal usage, dietary regimens, massage, and the list goes on, sometimes we forget that the great work of God is spelled out again by the master pattern man in Matthew chapter 9. Go to Matthew 9 now. Look at again Jesus' context of medical missionary work. Look at Jesus' context of medical missionary work. Matthew 9. Matthew, the ninth chapter, Jesus spells it out ever so beautifully. We really can't miss it. In Matthew, the ninth chapter, I want you to watch the story as we deal with that man who was sick of the palsy. And we're going to start at verse 1 and take it down to verse 7. I'll read verse 1, you'll read verse 2, and then we'll do it accordingly until we get to verse 7. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. 
The Bible says in Matthew 9, starting at verse 1, I'll read, And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Whether it's easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say arise and walk. And he arose and departed to his house. Question. Did, he, did Jesus heal him physically? Why? Why did he do it? So say it again. Okay, because he saw their faith, good. Anything else? Why did he heal him? Why did he heal his physical body? Say it again. To show that he had power to forgive sins. Is that not what the verse just said? That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed and walk. So the context of his physical work was so that he could endorse his spiritual work. You understand that? That's why we need to understand that medical missionary work is largely a spiritual work. Largely. Not minutely. Largely. A spiritual work. It's a means to an end. Our job, as I've said it for years, is not to help sick sinners become healthy, vibrant, strong sinners. That's not our work. It's a lot of other people's work. That's not our work. Our work is to help sick sinners become healthy, vibrant, strong saints of God. That's our work. You understand that? And we can't do that work faithfully and successfully if God doesn't even have our hearts. You understand that? Continuing, because this is the deceptive work that's going forward. This is what God wants revealed. Continuing. It then says, through spiritualism, Satan appears as a benefactor of the race, healing the diseases of the people, and professing to present a new and more exalted system of religious faith. But at the same time, he works as a... Now, doesn't that bring you back to Daniel 8? By peace he shall destroy many. It says, his temptations are leading multitudes to ruin. Intemperance dethrones reason, sensual indulgence, strife, and blood shed follow. Now, my point is this. If we void out the present truth, if we remove the everlasting gospel from our medical missionary work, we're not just only doing an ineffective work, we're actually doing the very same work the papists are doing. You understand that? So this is why it must be imperative. Now, why do I say this? I was sitting in Vietnam. I was with Dr. Uh, Brother John Bradshaw and a few others, and we were uh, there 
doing an ASI meeting. And when we were there doing an ASI meeting, I remember that we were all sitting down at a nice table, and I talked to some people who were talking about how they reach Muslims. And I said, really? And he said, oh, yeah, we're having great success reaching the Muslims. I said, really? I said, well, how did you get them to come out of Babylon? It got quiet. And I said, yeah, again, how did you get them to come out of Babylon? And they said, well, uh, we, we, we don't give them that message. Really? Okay, so let's rewind. Okay, what message do you give them? So what, we do, what we do is we show them how to accept Jesus and to, and to study the Bible, and we show them how to just, you know, we, we, we let them hold on to their faith, but then we go ahead and show them how they can practice our faith, but we don't get to those certain points just yet. I said, uh, where's that in Scripture? Where's that method? Well, you see, but I said, listen, you and I both know that there's a nice little manual outside of the Bible that belongs to all medical missionaries. You know that manual. That manual is called Ministry of Healing. Is that right? That book, Ministry of Healing, we are told, contains the wisdom of the great physician. Okay? Ministry of Healing. I said, now, you know Ministry of Healing 143 says, Christ, method, what's the next word? Alone. Can anything else be added to that? I said, all right, so if you're using that method, I said, where did Jesus use that method? I said, I need to see where Jesus used that method. You're encouraging them to hold on to error and falsehood. You're encouraging them to do that. While, at the same time, you're trying to get them to adopt this. It's kind of like, say, eat healthy food, but keep eating the garbage as well. You're still more than likely going to suffer with sickness that way. And so what's happening is there's all these methodologies and ways that we're trying to do God's work, tweaking what God has clearly said. I have learned, family, you know what's one of the hardest things to do both for men and institutions? To live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And do not add to it and don't take away from it. You know that's the hardest thing in the world to do? Every decision made in your personal life, as well as in an institution, is supposed to be thoroughly based on the word of God. And if there's even one decision, if there's even one practice that we have that we cannot substantiate according to the word of God, what kind of impact do you think that could have on the ministry? What kind of impact do you think that could have on your life? Just one thing that you hold on to, even if it's small, what if there's just one thing you hold on to that you can honestly say, we have no biblical basis for why we do this? So on this, we've, we've, we've disregarded what God has said just on this point, but 99% of what we're doing is exactly according to the words right here. What kind of impact do you think that will have on a person's life or on an organization? What, do you, what kind of impact do you think that would have? You're way too quiet, so let me help you. Go to Mark chapter 10. Let me show you. Mark chapter, I'll give you just a, I'm going to jog your memory. I'm going to jog your memory just a little bit. We're going to Mark chapter 10. And I want you to watch what the Bible says. Mark, uh, we're in chapter 10 here. Oh, yes, very good. Now, I want you to watch what Jesus says. I know you all know this story. It's in Mark chapter 10, and it's the story of a rich young 
ruler. Like I told you, I'm not educating anybody in this room. I'm sure I'm just reminding you of a story that you, you, know, you just didn't, didn't come to your mind when it needed, needed to, so I helped you out here. So look at this, Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 16. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running, and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may what? Inherit eternal life. You think that's an important subject? All right. Now, and Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one. That is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Don't kill. Do not steal. Don't bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Now I want you to watch what Jesus says in verse 21. I'm jogging your memory. It says, Then Jesus beholding him, loved him, and said, what's those next four words? One thing thou lackest. How many things? One thing. He had 99% right. He had how much wrong? One wrong. There was one area that he was lacking. But how does the story conclude with this man? How did he leave? The Bible goes on and it says, how did he leave? Verse 22. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. He was lost. How many things did it take to put him in this lost condition? So I go back to my question. If an individual or an institution does 99% of what the word says, but they hold on to even one thing that they can say, I know that this is not according to God's blueprint at all. I know that I don't have biblical substantiation for this at all. But it's a good thing. Let's go ahead and let's do it anyhow. If there's just one thing that we knowingly continue to press forward with while we see, I know that this is not according to what God has prescribed in his word. For either an institution or for my life as an individual, what is the effect of that one thing upon us or that institution? What can it do? It can cause us to be lost. You understand that? You see how important that is? God wants us to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God because that's the clearest contrast to this. It makes no sense to reveal the man of sin who commingles truth with error and then people see us and then our lives commingle truth and error. That becomes confusion. You understand that? So what God wants us to get very clearly tonight it's just a setting up the stage tonight. What God wants us to understand, he raised this movement up with a very specific purpose. We are not just caught up into apologetics. Yes, it is true. We're going to deal with a lot of people that are going to teach lots of errors. And yes, we should take the word of God and make plain the truth. But our goal is to reach more than the intellect. Our goal is to reach the, because that's what God wants. Is that right? The first thing that we studied of the two things God wants revealed through this movement, God says, I want revealed the, the man of sin. And why does God want the man of sin to be revealed? Because the man of sin leads people to, and sin does what between man and God? Separates us from God. Our goal is to unite people with God. But if we're going to unite people with God, there's going to be a time we have to expose the man of sin who causes people to sin that separates people from God. You understand that? So please understand, that's not a message of hate. It's actually a message born of love. 
Right now, I work in Western Massachusetts as an associate to the pastor over at the Florence Seventh-day Adventist Church, helping to nurture the church members, strengthen the church members, turn our church into a training school, and then to go ahead and penetrate the communities in Western Massachusetts. Do you know Western Massachusetts has the highest concentration in the Northeast of lesbians? LGBT movement moves strong. Now, I need to mingle with men as one who desires their good, and I need to show sympathy and minister to their needs and win their confidence. But sooner or later, the message has to be, now, follow me. Follow the truth. Now, watch this. You know what that means? To follow Christ means something. You see, go to Luke 9. What does it mean? Look at Luke 9. I want you to watch this. Luke 9. What does it mean to follow Christ? Please understand this. You know, sometimes we read ministry of healing, and, you know, we, we can possibly misapply the quotes. But if we're going to bid people to follow Christ, we have to understand what that really means. So let's go to Luke 9, and let's notice what the Bible says in verse 23. The Bible says in Luke 9 and verse 23, and he said unto them all, if any man will do what? Come after me. Another way of saying that is follow me. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross, how often? Daily. And so to follow Christ requires a denial of self. You understand that? Denial of self. Now, understanding that, you know what that means? That means that somewhere in our ministry healing Christ alone method, we have to say to our friends in those countries where they worship many gods, you must deny those gods if you're going to follow Christ. You know what we're going to have to say to those Muslims? We're going to have to say you're going to have to deny the teachings of anything that comes from Islam that contradicts the word of God. You cannot hold on to it and hold on to the truth for this time at the same time. You must deny that and follow God. You know what that means? That means that sooner or later, in all of my being nice and doing cooking classes and helping people go from sickness to wellness and all those other things, I have to say to the people in the LGBT community, you must deny this lifestyle. And you must follow Christ. They're going to say, why? Because it's sin. You understand that? God hates that. God hates sin. Oh, how he loves to save. We have to know how to do that. If that part is missing from our gospel medical missionary evangelism, then we are not doing gospel medical missionary work at all. Nobody can follow Christ unless they first, what? Deny self. You're going to have to deny that old lifestyle. You're going to have to turn away from your sins. And you must come to Jesus. That leads me to the second and final revelation of our study tonight. You see, two things. God has raised us up to reveal. The first thing is the man of sin. Why? Because the man of sin leads people to sin. And when people sin, they are what from God? Separated from God. Christians, the seven heaven is church, we've been raised up to unite people to God. Yea, even Christ in the most holy place. We are uniting them. But in order to accomplish that precious work, the man of sin must be revealed. His plan must be revealed. But oh, how confusing it would be as, as we reveal him, we see him in us. And so that means that there's a need for a heart search. Lord, 
I'm pointing out the beast power, but is there a beast power inside of my heart? Because what God wants is your heart. The focus of the beast power is the mingling of truth and error. The focus of the beast power is focus on a higher good while we deny and put aside things that we already know are offending God. Is there any of us who lives like this in our own homes? Could it be that there's a beast in our heart that God wants to reveal? You can't confess a sin you can't see. But you can definitely confess a sin that you can't see. You need to be asking yourself, what beast is it that's in my own heart? What is it that I have not allowed God to take over? And so now our final revelation that God raised us up for, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Notice what the Bible says now as we consider Romans, the first chapter. And let's look at this final revelation, Romans chapter 1. I love it. You're going to Romans 1, but I would imagine you know what I'm talking about when I said this. One of my brothers who came up here, or was it my sister? I don't remember. It was one of the missionaries who came up, and I think it was a gentleman, and he said uh, Romans 14. Yes, it was Romans 14. He gave 1 Peter 2.21 or 22, and then he gave Romans 14.12. Now, in Romans 14, you remember what it says. You're in Romans 1, but in Revelation, I said Romans 14, Revelation 14, in Revelation 14, you remember what, the, what, the, what John says? He says, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. What's the next word? Having. So that means that the angel has something in its possession. Is that right? Now, who's the angel? Who's the angel? All right, it's us. The angel, what did the angel have in its possession? All right, had the everlasting gospel. Is that right? Okay, now you can appreciate Romans 1. Now look at Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Romans 1, 16 and verse 17, it says, for I am not ashamed of the what? Gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now watch verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God, what's the next word? Revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Two things God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist church for. They both have encased in it the word revealed. God says, the first thing is I want that man of sin revealed. God says, I want the man of sin revealed because the man of sin leads people into sin and sin separates people from me. So God says, I want him revealed. If we muzzle our mouths to not point out who that man of sin is for all of our social political correctness purposes, we must understand we are denying the faith that we profess to be a part of. I didn't say that the first thing you do is shake people's hand and say, hey, did you know who the man of sin is? I didn't say that you do that. What I'm saying is, is that somewhere in your gospel proclamation, you must be intentional. That's a word that's used a lot nowadays. Everybody talking about getting physically fit and everything? Got to be intentional. What God is saying is, I want my people to be intentional about revealing that man of sin. Don't be passive about it. Be intentional. But God says, but I want you to also remember, I want you to reveal the righteousness of God 
is encased in the gospel. There's a lot of people talking about the gospel, but they're not revealing the righteousness of God. You see, far more important than being right is being righteous. Sometimes being righteous means to surrender your right. Isn't that what Paul taught us? You remember 1 Corinthians 8 when Paul was talking about those new believing Gentiles who joined the faith and they were being bothered by those Judaizers. They kept telling them, you got to get circumcised. You got to practice this and practice that. So Paul's talking to his Jewish boys one day and he says to them, listen, guys, look, we know that an idol is nothing. We know an idol is a piece of wood that has no life in it. So if we see some clean, legitimate food that's been offered to an idol, Paul says, we have a right to eat that food because we know an idol is nothing. But Paul says, but we know that not everyone has that understanding. Some people's faith is weak. So these new believing Gentiles who just come into the faith, if they see us eating that kosherized chicken that was offered to an idol, if they see us eating that, we know an idol's nothing. But to them, they're going to say, you're committing idolatry. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, even when we have this right, he said we should surrender it if exercising my right will cause them to stumble. It's more important to be righteous than simply to be right. And so what God is showing us through his word is he's saying, listen, if you really have the gospel, it's not about proving yourself right, but it sure is about living a righteous life. Brothers and sisters, if you go to 1 Corinthians 1.29, we know that Christ is our righteousness. So when we talk about living that righteous life, we're talking about living a Christ-like life. It means that when the wife is acting up and the wife is doing things that is of an ungodly sort, we must understand that we are not people of vengeance because that was not what Jesus was to his wife. If Jesus gave us what we deserved, none of us would be standing in this room. He was merciful. He was compassionate. He left a whole list of long-suffering love before he finally distributed his disciplinary action. Christ says, that's what I want to see with more husbands towards their wives. Jesus says, if you're truly righteous, you're going to understand that even though a man spits in your face, you and I are not ones to take vengeance and to render evil for evil. When someone wants to take our coat, we will go ahead and give them even more. Why are you blessing me when I just offended you? Because I love you and you are my brother. If we truly are experiencing Christ, our righteousness, then there's no doubt that we'll keep the Sabbath. Because we know that Jesus says, I have kept my father's commandments. But even when we keep the Sabbath, we won't talk about sports. We won't talk about what's been going on in the news. We won't talk about nice shoes, where'd you get it from? We won't talk about where'd you get your hair done, it looks really incredible. Tell me about the salon. Well, after Sabbath, I'll tell you the price. Our conversation would change because we love to talk about the theme of redemption. So even those of us who keep Sabbath need to go back and again, look at how do we keep Sabbath? You see, when Christ, our righteousness, is in our heart, God says, I don't want that to be an intellectual understanding. God says, I want that revealed because, my brothers and sisters, we're getting ready to end in a time 
we're about to go ahead and see Satan on a whole different level. And it's going to be imperative that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. You know why? Something I know you all can relate to as we close. We all have a sponge in our kitchen. And you use that sponge to wash your dishes or rag. And you know that whenever water gets in that sponge, when you squeeze the sponge, whatever is in the sponge is going to come out of the sponge. Is that right? Simple lesson. Jesus says, now is the day that I want to make my home in your heart. The reason why is because we're getting ready to come up to a time where if we are alive, we're all going to be squeezed. The pressures of life and the trials of life are going to squeeze us. And when the pressures of life and the trials of life squeezes us, whatever is in us is going to come out of us. So if there's even one area of unchristlikeness, if there's any area or ray of ungodliness within us, then when we get squeezed, it's going to come out of us. This is why Jesus says, I want you to receive my righteousness now because your day of squeezing is coming. And if Christ, your righteousness, and Christ, my righteousness, if Christ, our righteousness, is in us, the hope of glory, then when we get squeezed, the only thing that will come out is a Christ-like response. You know why this is so important to me? And I really know what I'm saying. We are here, and, uh, you know, some of us, we got really nice suits, and beautiful dresses, got hair done, looking nice, got you on your Sabbath best, and, you know, the people of God. Been in the church, some of us, second, third generation, SDA, and all these other things. I've been in this church for 25 years. And I've been in ministry for about 15 of those 25 years. I've been in full-time ministry for 10 of those 15 years. I have traveled the planet, going around, preaching the word, sharing it with all sorts of folks, prayed with people, taught at schools and universities and churches and conferences, ASI, GYC, and all of the stuff in between, networks, 3ABN, Audioverse, and so on. People would often email me and call me and say how their lives have been changed. Last year, I just went on a visit to go see my cardiologist. When I went on a visit to see my cardiologist, I'm just thinking, well, I'm going to see him because my friend told me a year before I need to go see a cardiologist because the left side of my heart looks kind of big. And when I go to see that cardiologist, my brothers and sisters, this man of God, this world-traveling evangelist, this guy who everybody treats like he's more than a human, when I went in that cardiologist's office, I expected him to say, Mr. Lemon, your heart's working like a horse, brother. Keep it going. And when I sat in that room, that man said, Mr. Lemon, I want you to look at my screen. And he starts showing me my heart. He starts showing me all this blood that's going back in my left atrium. 
and my valve is basically all messed up. And he says to me, Mr. Lemon, I have to refer you to a heart surgeon. And I'm thinking, a heart surgeon? What are you talking about? And he said, Mr. Lemon, you need open heart surgery. Your valve is bleeding severely. If you don't do something, you're going to go through heart failure. And that could kill you. And I left that office. And I remember this world-traveling evangelist, this guy who's telling everybody, trust God, serve God, no matter what, stay faithful, and everything else in between. And when, for the first time in my life, I had to actually face, wait a minute, I could possibly die. All of a sudden, I found myself carrying an attitude towards God as if he abandoned me, turned his back on me, left me hanging and left me to die. And I began to accuse God with the very thing that Job refused to accuse him with. I accused God of folly. I started treating him like, you don't even know what you're doing. How could you let this happen to me? And I began to attack the one who was literally sustaining my bleeding heart. No symptoms. I go up to the surgery. They told me that your valve is irreparable, can't be repaired. And God reminded me of Luke 18, 27, that which is impossible with man is possible with God. I stand before you in a few days. It'll be exactly one year since that open heart surgery. And I can tell you that God is faithful. I marvel at how God can show so much evidence I'm with you. But if we allow ourselves, we can be blind to the whole thing. And we can just kind of keep going and going and going. What I'm saying to you is this. I've been ministering. I've been in the church for 25 years. I've been ministering for 15. I've been doing it full time for 10. And God did not have my heart. Can you imagine that? The very thing that he wants is what he didn't have, and what it took was a crisis. That's all it took. I literally was blind. I couldn't see it. I thought he had me. I thought I had him. I thought we were good. You don't understand what I've dealt with. I've dealt with a lot of backstabbing and all sorts of drama in this movement. People who shake your hand, hey, Brother Lemon, while they literally tear your name apart after your back. Literally, I spoke at an ASI one time. A man came to me. Brother, you're powerful. You're great. You're this, you know, he's saying all this stuff about me. And the next thing you know, he leaves me, and he goes to a back room, and he says to Frank Fournier, he says, don't ever bring Lemon back here again. He didn't know that Frank Fournier actually liked my messages. There was another brother that was standing right there. I won't say his name. He was a friend of mine, too, and he heard him saying that, and he came over to me. He said, Dwayne, listen, you see that guy right there? Yeah. He does not like you, brother. Doesn't want you here. There's so many fake friends in this movement. Divisions and everything that'll, that'll stab you right in the back. I mean, it's just terrible. And you go through a lot for the cause of Christ. 
But somehow I thought creature merit was in there, and I just thought, well, you know, I'm God's man, and you know, so on. And then when I felt like God abandoned me, can you, brothers and sisters, I repent. So now that God has raised me up, God has given me truly a new heart. <laughs> um, it, it's really beautiful. I actually can act, I can actually say, praise God for my open heart surgery, because I would never had seen this condition. I just didn't see it. So when I go through this simple study, to some of us, oh, yeah, 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 I heard that before. If you're one of those, you might need to visit your cardiologist. My hope and my prayer is you don't have to go through a very traumatic experience like I had to go through to realize the defects in your heart. Sometimes God allows some of us to go through it so we can tell you before your crisis, you need to really assess yourself to see if God has your heart. Because God wants to work through you to do the great revelation. He wants you to reveal that man of sin because the man of sin causes people to sin and sin separates people from God. So Jesus says, so to counter that, I want you to reveal my righteousness through the gospel so that when the people see you, they will see Christ, their righteousness. They will see a character that they will say like it was said of the apostles of old, these men and these women must have been with Jesus because everything they do reminds me of him. But how much sweeter it is when your wife can say that. When your wife can say, honey, you turn around, yes. She can say, honey, You've been with Jesus. I can see it. I am alarmed at how many homes are broken right now. This movement. How many homes are broken where there are husbands and wives that are tolerating each other rather than loving each other? Christ is saying, wife, it's time that your husband can look at you and say, honey, you've been with Jesus. You'll say, why? why? Why do you say that? And they'll be able to say, you're different. Because you know if anybody's qualified to say that as it relates to humanity, it's our spouses, isn't it? Isn't it a sweet thing when your child can come to you and say, Mommy and Daddy, you've been with Jesus. Why do you say that, son? Why do you say that, daughter? You're different. How many of you realize you need to be different? You understand that? It's a sweet thing when our spouses, our children can say that. And then one day, if you're listening careful enough, Jesus will say something to you that he said to a man a long time ago. Jesus and a man came in touch. This is our closing point. If we could have a pianist play, I'd appreciate that. Jesus, you know, he, he, he comes in contact with a man the man begins to explain to Jesus, what we need to do is trust God with all our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves and so on. And as this man is saying this to Jesus, Jesus looks at him and Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's a sweet statement, isn't it? 
Imagine one day you go through a trial and the trial is big. And instead of going to Christ and saying, oh, Lord, if you only would do this, if you only would do that, instead you just say, Lord, whatever your word says is what I'll accept. Do you understand what you'll lose? Whatever your word says is what I'll accept. Do you understand the sacrifices you're going to have to make? Whatever your word says is what I accept. You know what Jesus is going to do if you're listening carefully? Spiritually, he's going to put his arm around you. And he's going to say, I have not found so great faith. Not even amongst my own Seventh-day Adventists. Christ is ready to say these things about you. He's ready to say these things about me. But it's going to require a higher cooperation than what we have already given to him. I want you to think about where in your life are you not cooperating with God? Where are you frustrating the gospel? It is true. As I just said, I honestly did not see this aspect of my condition. I really didn't see it. it I, I needed that crisis. Couldn't see it. I was that blind. What I'm saying to you is, do you at least see yours? Because if you see your plague spot, wow, you're in a better position than I was. If at least you could say, I know exactly what my plague spot is. I know exactly what it is. I know where I am frustrating God. I know where I am blocking his spirit from having his complete dominion in my heart. I know where it is. If at least you see it, you're more blessed than you know. Because that means that the eye salve is doing its work. And so my first appeal If you see very clearly where your plague spot is, if you see it, and you're saying, preacher, I'm asking you to please remember me in prayer that God will truly help me to overcome the plague spot that I'm fully aware of, that I have not allowed him to have control in my life. I want to first invite you to stand to your feet. You know who you are. just want to pray with you. You see your plague spot. You see it. I know exactly what it is. Now, I don't know how many appeals you might have heard like this before. And, uh, you know, we, we have lots of habits in Adventism. One of the things we have a habit of is getting more training. <laughs> and I'm not saying that to, to knock. Some of you need more training. But there's, there's, a, group, there's a group of Adventists that Sometimes they feel like they'll just become excellent getting more training. And sometimes you've been trained. You just need to take what you learn and go in the field now and just do it. And then you'll go ahead and you'll get better at it. There are some people that just need to go into the field and just do what you've been learning and just do it regularly. And you will, that's going to be the continuum of your training. Some of us are proverbial for training. But you know another thing we're proverbial for? Standing up for appeals. Sometimes we just stand up for appeals because it's the right thing to do. To stand up, you know, oh, what will they say if they see me sitting down? No, I won't have embarrassed myself. And then we stand up for the appeal. My brothers and sisters, I pray you didn't do that. We're not here to keep up good old SDA habits. You're standing up because you know I got a plague spot. I see it clear as day. And there's no way that I know that God can save me while I'm holding on to this plague spot. That's why you're standing. 
And it's not, it's not for everybody to stand. Some people are honestly like, look, I, I, Lord, I don't know what I'm withholding from you. So if you're standing, you're not in that category. You're saying, I know, I'm clear, I'm, I'm holding on to something. I'm not letting it go. Tonight is your night. Christ says, I want to be that Lamb of God, and I want to take away your sin. He'll let you do it. He's going to let you do it. No man can overcome self by himself. Thank God we can consent to let Christ take our heart. Jesus is a gentleman. He will never force his way into your life, but he will stand at your heart's door and knock like a gentleman. And if we open our hearts and say, Lord, take my heart because I cannot give it. It is your property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. And save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. You will find that God says, Father, that's the one that's going to do the last two reveals in these words. Thank God for all of you that stand. May God truly have his way in your heart, because truly Jesus is getting ready to wrap this thing up. It is time to go home. We need to get off this planet. There's a lot of bad things happening in this world, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. We must be about our Father's business. May God help us to be faithful to why we are standing at such a time as this. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to kneel for this prayer of consecration. If you're able to, I'd like to invite you to kneel with me. If you can't kneel, just reverently bow your heads. But if you can kneel, Let's kneel together and let's let the Lord speak to our heart. Our loving Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have helped us understand you raised us up for a very specific purpose. They both involve that wonderful word, reveal. You have called us to reveal the greatest power that's working throughout this earth right now to bring humanity into sin and join the great rebel leader. I praise you and thank you that you have given us a message that reveals that man of sin and that the world can be warned. But Lord, a warning alone cannot save anyone. They must see something better. That's why that final revelation is so imperative, that we can reveal the righteousness of God contained within the gospel. That righteous is not an intellectual assent to truth merely. It is a living power that changes people, that we are no longer the same husbands. We're no longer the same wives. We're no longer the same children. We're no longer the same church brethren, but we actually have learned to love like Jesus loved. Lord, I pray that as my brothers and sisters stood up recognizing plague spots in their life, those areas where they know they have not allowed you to have your own way. Father, it would be just like the devil that as quickly as we leave this place, that he would steal away the precious seeds that have been planted within our hearts. Lord, I pray, please protect our minds. Grant us double portions of your angels. Help us to reflect on what we heard this evening. Are we papists within our heart? Is there a beast power that is resting and ruling and abiding and putting aside certain sins while we hold on to the things we understand of righteousness? Or have we finally gotten to that place that we no longer simply sing the song, but we live the song, I surrender all? Father, I pray, please, 
begin this work in our heart, and then prepare us to practically walk in this light tomorrow. Keep us, we pray, and thank you for hearing our prayer. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.